This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, Show 66. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co host, dressed in a fancy coat, Mr. Brandon Turner. What's up, Brandon? Why are you all decked out in that woolly, uh, woolly coat there? Well, we had like spring for like five minutes, but it's gone already. Oh, I'm yeah, so sad, sad for you. Yeah, fat guy in a little coat. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I tell you what, man, it was earlier in the week, it was 77. And the next day, it was uh, that night, it was 17 degrees. And I had turned my sprinklers on. <laughs> and my entire, like, I, I forget what it's called, but this one of the sprinkler assemblies in, in the morning had exploded and there was water shooting all over my, uh, <laughs> my front lawn. Thank God for my neighbor who uh, laughed at me. <laughs> well, hey, besides that, how are things? Things are good, man. Things are good. Working out of the new office here in Denver. Loving that. It's it's going well. So uh, Bigger Pockets headquarters is uh, fun. is fun. Is fun. Yeah. How about you? What, what what's going on? All well. All is well. I'm almost done with my fence, so my dog can no longer escape out the back. That's great. That's great. I'm I'm glad you've been employing slave labor to get that done. <laughs> Child labor, not slave labor. Come on, Josh. <laughs> Uh, Brandon's got his his children, his neighborhood children, painting, painting the fence. Uh, you know, hammering it in. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, they do good work. <laughs> that's great. That's great. You, you should send your little crew my way. I could use their help. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, show sixty six of the Bigger Pockets podcast. We're we're pretty excited about this one. Uh, for those of you guys who are listening, definitely uh, make sure to jump on the show notes if you've got any questions or anything. It's at biggerpockets.com slash show sixty six. And uh, before we move any further, I just want to make a a quick plead to our listeners. Uh, you guys, we we definitely appreciate all the feedback you give us, and we do take it all into consideration, even when we disagree with it. Uh, that said, in order to better get the word spread about the Bigger Pockets podcast, we really, really ask that you guys help us out. And and to do that, all we ask that you do is jump on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It, it shouldn't take you more than two or three minutes and, and uh, you know, Give a give an honest uh, rating and 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 review and and that will help us climb in the charts and and get more people listening and and more people helped out by the Bigger Pockets podcast and ultimately uh, more people involved in the community. So please help us out and do that. All right, before we introduce our guest, let's get to today's quick tip. tip. That was that was like the angry tip. <laughs> that was my ACDC quick tip. Oh, is that what that was? Yeah, yeah. Highway yeah. to hell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, don't, don't go there. <laughs> All right. Today's quick tip is a little self-serving, but we are again asking for your help, you guys. If you could do us a favor and check your emails, spam or junk folder, and look for any messages from Bigger Pockets, and click the button on your email that lets your email provider know that it's not spam. Uh, we're testing out some new email software, and we want to make sure that the new system doesn't end up in the wrong place. Uh, and you could all help us. 
Uh, make sure that the email providers know that we're only sending good stuff, not ads for uh, fake mortgages and other unseemly products <laughs> that Brandon is a regular user of. <laughs> Just the mortgages. Yeah. All right. So why don't we introduce our our guest today? Uh, today on the Bigger Pockets podcast, we're chatting with Michael Blanc, a uh, restaurant entrepreneur turned house flipper turned apartment investor from the Washington, D.C. area. Michael's got a ton of wisdom to share about raising private money, finding good deals, and tells a really, really important and shocking story about the worst tenant I've ever heard of and the legal problems that the tenant caused that almost destroyed Michael's first apartment deal. So you're definitely going to want to hang around for that. Seriously, if if you're if you don't know how to beware of professional tenants and or what a professional tenant is, you really, really have to listen to the show. Uh, they're, they're, the, these guys can cause you a lot of problems, and, and this story is going to educate you like nothing else. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. So that's pretty much it. Again, check us out on the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 66. And with that, let's bring this guy in. Michael, welcome to the show, man. Good to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Michael, I think you are the like 15th Michael we've had on the show since we started. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody, <laughs> somebody's going to correct me in the show notes and tell me how many we've really had. But yeah, well, we're glad to have you anyway, even if you aren't quite, you know, original. 
Uh, I'm pretty cold, original. Man. That's cold, dude. Ouch. Shoot. Starting already. You know, 30 seconds into the show. I know. This is, this I is know. abuse you signed up for, man. You knew it was coming. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Well, hey, why don't we? Uh, why don't we start with the question we usually start with? And how did you get started investing in real estate? All right. Good question. So I have a uh, I have a software background. I have a master's in computer science, which I feel is a uh, the you know qualification to get into real estate. So that's the <laughs> I route I chose. <laughs> And if you don't have that, you're just not going to be able to succeed in this I'm, business. I'm so, sure mom and dad were so proud when you so, decided so, uh, to quit. Uh, so after after throwing that away, no, seriously, you know, I, I actually, uh, I, I read the Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was like 35 years old. And I'm like, I am such an idiot. I'm wasting my time here. I need, I need passive income, you know. And and so I, you know, there's two things I I did is is. I got started with real estate and I got started with what I you know, thought was a cash flow business, which is restaurants. And we'll talk about that later. But that's really... Wait, wait you know, somebody told I, you that restaurants was a cash flow business? Oh, yeah, yeah they, they are. They're not, definitely not an appreciation play. They're definitely cash flow. But the, on the real estate side, it was definitely flipping houses was the first thing I started doing. Okay, flipping houses. So um, what got you into that? Like, how, did, how did you get from rich dad, poor dad to flipping houses? Well, I want to know. I want to know why you chose restaurants. Actually, I mean, you know, from my perspective, I hear getting into the restaurant business, and I think, oh my God, this is the biggest nightmare possible. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I um, I I have a little bit of a leg up on uh, because I made some money in in the software IPO, and I wanted to parlay that into uh, a cash flow producing business. So I I met a few other franchisees of a concept and they described the business to me and it was perfect. It was like, well, we're going to, we're going to, it's going to cost this much to open. We're going to hire a guy to run everything and we're just going to count the money. And I said, well, that's perfect. That sounds just what I'm looking for. Yeah. And, and so that's why what I did. And I, I basically plowed my net worth into the, you know, basically what wound up be three restaurants. And I did hire a guy and he was with me for seven years. And it worked out really well for about five and a half years. It really, it really did. Um, so that's why I got into that. Gotcha. So are you still doing the restaurant business then? Yep. Yep. That's kind of my, my job, if you will, at the moment. Okay. So you do that as kind of a full-time gig for the most part, or is it kind of you know, self-managed? No, it's, it's not full-time, but it's, it's close to full-time. I parted ways with my, the, the, my operating partner I talked to you about a year ago. And, and since then, I've kind of had this job. But I'm, I'm so proud of my managers who have really stepped up, and I've been able to delegate more. They've taken more responsibility. And so the job is, is not nearly as full-time as it, as it was, say, six months ago. Nice. Nice. Do you want to plug your restaurants while we're, while we're here? Give, you, give, give them a <laughs> shout-out. Anyone in D.C.? Yeah, sure. It's a franchise out of Southern California called, uh, called Z Pizza. It's like a letter Z P and Pizza. Oh, nice. It's about 100 locations uh, nationwide. Yeah. Wow, awesome. Great little concept. Cool. I'll have to check that out next time I'm in, in your area. Hopefully, you'll buy me a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get perks when I can. When I can, right? All right. <laughs> All right so, you went from uh, the restaurant industry, somehow read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in there, and started flipping houses. Can you kind of walk us through that transition? Well, I mean, there's, there's two things I wanted to do. I mean, literally, I, I wanted a cash flow business and real estate. And, and I... I, I, for some reason, I dismissed kind of the buy and hold thing. I really wanted to get into flipping, and so at the time, I you know I flipped like a couple houses. I I signed up with a local mentor and I sent up my you know postcard campaign, 
And, you know, I set up an 800 number and whatever. And sure enough, out of the first set of postcards, I got a hold of one landlord out of state who I was marketing to. We had a house about an hour west of here where I was marketing that geography. And he had two houses. And I bought both of them. Oh, nice. And made like $110,000 on these two flips, which was about the same amount of my salary before. And I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. <laughs> You know, this is amazing. I mean, I, you know, obviously, I wasn't spending 40 hours a week on this stuff. And I was like, man, you know, there is really some truth to working not necessarily harder, but smarter. And I, that really opened my eyes. Nice. 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 Was that, you, wh- when was that? Was that before the crash? Yeah. It's, yes, it, it, exactly. It was before the crash. It was uh, 2005 and early 2006. And then I stopped doing it. I did like three houses and I stopped because I was getting very busy on the restaurants uh, side of things. So in, in hindsight, I looked like a genius because I kind of wrote out, I missed the entire recession. And uh, yeah, I saw it coming. And so, you know, <laughs> nice, nice. so I got, I got a little lucky and I resumed in 2009. I did a couple in 2009. And then in 2010, my goal was to really build a business. And that's where I started raising money. And I hired a project manager, assistant, and we were buying two houses, you know, every month. So that year we did about 24 uh, did about 32 total. So in wow. 2010 and 2011, really was the uh, that was that was you know my primary business at the time. Nice, wow. nice, cool. nice, nice. So so on on these first properties, where were those? Were those in SoCal? Were you is, was that where you were? No, these are all in the DC area. These are in um, in PG County, Maryland. Most of them. Some of them are in Northeast DC. So these are all blue collar neighborhoods. A very unique market at the time where the retail market was really coming back strong in 2009, 2010, uh, but there was a huge supply of foreclosures. So you can get them for cheap and you can sell them quick for a lot. It was, the, the spread was, was just incredible and very unique and that, that now has closed in this market. So it's very difficult to, to find uh, deals now. Gotcha. And, and you, were, you were finding these deals, all, all the deals that you've done from then till today, primarily through, uh, through mail marketing. Is that right? No, I got a little lazy. I uh, did that in the, in the early days when the market was hot, obviously. I mean, you couldn't find anything on the MLS. That's when I did direct, uh, direct mail. Um, and I sent postcards and, and letters and things of that nature. Uh, but the second time around, 2009, 2010, uh, I had built up a network of wholesalers, basically through networking. And I got basically almost 90% of my deals through uh, wholesalers. And so I got, quote unquote, lazy because there was such a supply of foreclosures and people that knew what I was looking for, and as long as it was my my you know sixty five percent of ARV minus repairs, I was buying. I don't care how much the wholesaler made. Nice. Well, let, let's actually dive into that a little bit because um, I guess there's a lot of people who listen to the show who are wholesalers or who want to be wholesalers. So, what I guess what kind of advice can you give people who are trying to get into that field? Like, what did you look for in a good wholesaler? I mean, how how should somebody approach that? It, that's a great question, yeah. Brandon, because because out of every 10 wholesalers, there's maybe two that are good, mm-hmm. meaning they're consistent, they know how to estimate the after repair value and the repairs, and they put together a package. The vast majority of them will send an email with a you know with an address uh, and an asking price, you know, do your own diligence, that kind of stuff. And to me, that's not really valuable. That's 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 really not valuable at all. But the good wholesalers I would buy over and over and over again. Because they were much more diligent in putting together their their numbers, they knew they knew that you know what rehabbers were looking for. So, so what exactly, Michael, do you want to see in in the package from these guys? Uh, yeah, obviously, you want to see more than an address, right? What what, what yeah, do you expect? I mean, sure, I mean, I want to I want to see obviously what what their asking price is. 
uh, I want to know what they think the after repair value is and what the estimated repairs are and also what the scope of the repairs is. So uh, that way I can see whether their estimated repairs are actually in a ballpark. Uh, and photos would be nice. I mean, the more I can do without going to the property, the better, because I got to the point where I, I, I didn't drive out there unless I got the numbers to work on paper uh, first. So if, an, if a wholesaler can't let me do that, then the chances were slim that I actually went with that deal. It would have been taking too much time to do. Yeah, and, and, and presumably those photos and, and all the data is really going to just make your job that much more easy. Nice. Thanks. Exactly. Um, if, yep. if people want to uh, like uh, listen to another show that we did back on uh, episode 33 with Sam Craven, uh, he talked a lot about that. As He's a wholesaler. Um, I mean, he does a lot of flipping too, but he talked about he prepares these packets of information and that was his golden information. And when I heard that, I'd never really heard it put like that before. So anyway, people, when you're done listening to this episode, go listen to number 33 if you want to know more about that. Yeah, and if you're, well, I was going to say, and if you're a wholesaler, you know, Pay attention, you yeah. know, and 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 don't be that guy that just yeah you know, shoots out the 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 email saying, "Hey, I got properties, I got properties." You know, be be diligent, and and people are going to take you a lot more seriously. And I, I think that's the problem most uh, new wholesalers deal with is you know they don't know what the heck they're doing, and and I think most professional investors like somebody like yourself uh, doesn't take them seriously when when they don't know what they're doing. And in this changing market, you probably have to include the market rent in there because the, the lot of wholesalers I'd say at this point are wholesaling to. Uh, buying holders, landlords, they're going to care about the market rate rent. That's yeah, a, that's a great that's tip. A really good tip. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of times people just think of wholesalers working with flippers, but um, yeah, it's a lot bigger than that. So very cool. Well, hey, how are you uh, funding your flips back then? I know you had some money from the you know IPO, but was that you were funding yourself or? So at, at the end of uh, my my run, I had to basically deployed all my money in restaurants and uh, some real estate that I held, and and so in two thousand nine, when I restarted, I really had no more cash left. Which, which you know, it's it is much easier to use your own cash. Easier meaning that you tend to do less due diligence on the opportunities because I felt a very strong uh, pressure to deploy the cash I had uh, so that it would produce more cash. And I think it made me sloppy. And when I ran out of my cash, I had to actually raise money. That means I have to convince other people that what I'm about to do is a good idea. <laughs> and so. <laughs> Uh, and so you get much more discerning on the kind of deals that 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 you do. But on the house on the house flipping side, I found it remarkably easy to raise money because I was raising raising it with a minimum of twenty five thousand. Uh, I told people that we can use their IRA, and it would be secured by real estate, and they would get a promissory note from the title company, and the title company would handle everything. And it was, and I was paying twelve percent interest at the time. I can probably get away with paying a little less now, but it was such a no-brainer given the fact that it seemed like a relatively low-risk investment and a high return that I had no trouble you know, raising that kind of money from you know, friends and, and family first and then getting referrals to other people. I just got a lot of yeses. So, so how did how those first conversations go? I, I, you know, I, we, we talked to a lot of people about you know, raising money and, and getting out there and telling folks, yeah, well, you, know, you just let them know what you do. And and suddenly they they get curious and say, oh well, how do I do it? You know, how do I get involved? I mean, is it that easy? Or you know, what 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 does one of those conversations go like to your you know your cousin John, who's you know potentially curious about what you're up to? Yeah, I mean, they'll ask, hey, what's new in your life? I say, you're not going to believe it. You know, I'm getting into, I'm flipping houses right now, and you know, I'm I'm it's it's a twenty five thousand minimum, and it's secured against the real estate. And you get the promissory note, and I pay twelve percent interest. You know, 
uh, and people are really excited about that. And, and and I was like, oh, by the way, I mean, you wouldn't happen to know someone that might be interested. And they go, well, I might be interested. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my favorite question to ask. I, I think all of my private lenders ever have come that way. Has been, do you guys know anybody that'd be interested? I love yeah. that question. Yeah, yeah. And and if they if they don't, then you say, well, they they might refer you to somebody, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and you no, know, my brother might. And you talk to the brother, and yeah, he's very interested, and he will most likely know someone else who is also. Yeah. Hey, hey Michael. So I mean, it seems pretty darn easy. I mean, I I think I think a lot of people have this you know big fear like oh what does the pitch look like and what does it need to you know what do I need to have and and that was pretty simple and 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 ultimately fairly convincing i mean you didn't really tell me much about what you're working on but you know if if, if you're confident in in what your opportunity is and what you're looking for i i think for those people listening uh, it's it's fairly uh straightforward what what you might want to ask people and here's one other uh, tip, Josh, because I think about it. So, someone who's never done this before, they don't have a track record, right? So what I always, uh, and this is important, uh, you basically just make up a deal, right? You create up a flip from nothing and you say, hey, I'm going to buy for this. I'm going to put this much repair in. You have photos and you put this little package together and that's what you show your investor saying, look, I haven't done a deal yet, but I'm going to do one and it's going to look just like it. Yeah, and you know, and and that will make it more real to you, and it'll make it more real to the investor. Now, obviously, once you've done a deal, you start building a portfolio, and you show that to the investor. Yeah. But in the very beginning, that is my advice on how to how to get over that. That's a great idea. As as long as you're you're straightforward and and don't lie, <laughs> you know, don't say, "Hey, this is a deal that I did, and it's some BS deal that you made up." No, Here's no, you got to say hypothetical. This. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Now that's awesome. There's a there's a book I'm reading right now called Pitch Anything by Oren Claff, and really, really, really good book all about, uh, I guess, making pitches to people, whether it's for financing, whatever. It's not a real estate book, just in general. But one of the things he talks about in this book is is to always position yourself as the prize. Right, you don't go to somebody saying, "I need money, I need money because I'm desperate for money." You position yourself as, "I'm the prize. I've got something worth investing in. Do you want in on it?" I mean, it's yeah. it's just a a mindset shift if you can do that and become the prize. It's a it's kind of a revolutionary thing right there. So yeah, hey Michael, you're more of a prize than Brandon at this point. Just you know, <laughs> ouch, ouch. <laughs> All right, man. So. So you you know you get into this flipping business. What what are some of the big mistakes you made while you were uh, flipping? I really haven't made any, Josh. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Awesome. No, no, so just, moving on to the next guy who's I, not lying. Uh, I'm just kidding. No, here's the thing: is that, and, and you look you approach this a little bit of, like a portfolio approach, meaning that you are going to make some mistakes. You might even lose some money as long as you're you know making more than you're losing. Uh, that's kind of what counts, and you try to minimize your losses. But uh, you know, see, off the top of my head, some of the things I I did wrong was you know uh, overestimating the after repair value. One one example, Guilty. especially when the house is maybe a little smaller, or you know, it's got a funky layout, or um, it's on a major you know street, or it's bordering a questionable neighborhood, stuff like that. So in other words, when there's something questionable, it makes it hard to comp. Uh, it always makes it difficult, and in hindsight, you could have said, "Well, either I should have walked from the deal, or I should have, you know, lowered it." It's sometimes hard to do, but that's one mistake. Um, then on the construction side of things, you know, not pulling permits for everything probably is one mistake. And sometimes it's ignorance. Sometimes you're trying to see what you can get away with. If it's a small cosmetic, you know, 
uh, project and <laughs> you know and then you get caught and now you know and now you're like you know either way the consequence is the same whether you knew it or not now you have expenses and fines and stop work orders so basically what i'm saying is do it by the book you know? got, and the third one is advice. You know, yeah and then you know with i think i cut base, you off real quick i want to i just want to yeah. make a point on that a couple of weeks ago i had some siding work done on my apartment and it was just a repair so i replaced a couple of sheets well the couple of sheets started in the thick sheets but the guy was working on the weekend on it, so he just did the whole thing. Well, you don't need a permit for two sheets, but uh, they thought six sheets would need a permit, and he didn't. You know, it was a weekend. Anyway, now I have to tear off all the siding that we put up, all six sheets, and and have them inspect, and then put it back on again. So exactly, even if, yeah, yeah. If, if it's even like borderline like that, like I should have just gotten a permit for the two, and then I would have been fine. But I yeah yeah anyway. Okay, go on. More mistakes. Yeah, so so doing it by the book is probably good advice. It'll cost you more money in the short term. But it, you know, in hindsight, uh, cutting corners probably basically hurts you at the end of the day. And that yep. same goes with you know with basements. You know, these older houses have wet basements. Putting in a drain tile system up front, which is very expensive. Underwriting a deal with something like that in there, if it's at all, if there's any question whatsoever about the basement, is a good idea because it will bite you in the butt. You know, later. <laughs> yep. Yep. Sounds like you've been there. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Cool. Yep. What? Well, what what are some of the things you think you did well at then? Like, what caused you to succeed so well at flipping? Well, I mean, I I think I did a thing well after I did poorly, which is I was going to say building a good team. I did well, but only after I screwed up the first time around. Meaning, when I got started in 2010, I wanted to go big, but I had an untested team. I had a project manager who was a, a sort of a friend of mine, and he did one of my you know one of my houses. Uh, but uh, but but he couldn't handle. He was very poor on an administrative side and. People skills actually, he just were overwhelmed. Um, I didn't have, you know, I had new assistants, I had new, you know, somewhat new real estate agents, and I just had an untested team. Really, it should have been more tested. So halfway in the in the, through it, I, I made some changes and replaced those team members with ones that were very competent. And it's everything everything you do in business. It's all about the people, right? And if you have, if you don't have a good team in place, you're going to have problems. On the other hand, if you have a really good team that's really firing all cylinders, it's amazing what you can do. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. That's oh, very yeah, cool. So sure. let's, let's talk a little bit more about the team then. I mean, who did you all have on your team at the time? And how did you kind of bring those people together and find the right people? Well, I was going to say, you know, before even that, you know, at what point did you realize it was time to build the team, right? How did you know, I'm not going to handle all this, you know? Or was that just an upfront, yeah, I'm not going to handle all this? <laughs> Well, I mean, I knew what I was doing before, so I knew what that was in, what it was involved with. And the first thing I did is I kind of I had I hired an assistant to help me with the paperwork. So there's a lot of paperwork involved with with buying property and selling a property. You know, the, dealing with the title companies, that dealing with the investor, a lot of paperwork there. And where'd you where'd you find an assistant? Just um, this one, I, I I found her locally. She was also she started coming on as a bookkeeper. Okay, and she could handle a little bit more. Uh, but I've since then hired hired several virtual assistants to do that. And there's no reason why one of my VAs couldn't do some of the stuff. That, that there's no reason for them to be, uh, you know, locally where you are. And are, are these are these VAs in the U.S. or are these overseas? I, I have mostly hired. I know all of my are in U.S. And I, I usually use Elance.com. Okay. I found has been has been great. I've used it over and over. Uh, sometimes it takes a little while to find the right person, but you will find the right person with some persistence. And I've used that to, to with great success. Oh, that's great. That's great. All right, so you you've got the assistant. You you kind of get the processes, the paperwork part going. Uh, you you said you had uh, a friend of yours become PM, project manager, and uh, then what about everything else? 
Yeah, and so he was my quote unquote general contractor who managed others, and I did replace him with another general contractor. So in my mind, there's a lot of investors, rehabbers that do this themselves. And you can do it to a certain point. I did not want to be that hands-on, and at that volume, there's no way you can do it yourself. So you can have, you're going to need one or maybe two very strong general contractors that handles all that. So how hands-on were you? I mean, were, were you the guy who pulled the pulled the trigger on the properties, and then you know, pretty much once you've got it systematized, turned the reins over to your to your people, and and you know maybe came went and walked the site once in a while, just answered questions, or you know what what was your job in the in the whole process? Yeah, exactly right. What I, what I would do is I would make sure the deal worked before on paper. Then I would go out and look at it with go to my contractor to make, and then within a day he would get me the the estimate back. And then at the same time, I had my realtor give me uh, the after repair value. And I and the other thing I want to make is if you're going to do that, you got to trust your realtor. A lot of realtors tend to overestimate the ARV. Mine, I almost fought with him on the other way around. He was very conservative, really new investments. And after one or two deals, I simply said, just tell me what your number is. And then my contractor, what's your number? I put it in my spreadsheet. And if that worked out, I would then negotiate the price, uh, send the contract over, and then the assistant would handle the rest, really. Yeah. And it sounds like, I think, uh, a lot of the the more experienced flippers that we've talked to and that we know from the site and tend to do and uh, it's going to sound like it's a negative but it's not uh, the the cookie cutter approach to to their flips you know kitchens that pretty much the same the scale of repairs pretty much the same paint colors the same yeah you know, so it it seems like your team knows at this point what you want and and so you don't have to do too much work at, at that point just a lot of uh you know checking the numbers approving what people are deciding to do and and letting them run with it yeah i mean in the beginning clearly you're going to be much more involved uh, but if you play your cards right, you will start pulling back from that. And that allows you to do more. Do you see a lot of connections between you know, entrepreneurship in the business world and the real estate world? I, I really do. I, I think uh, you know, we call ourselves real estate investors, but at, at the heart of it, we're really entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot in common with almost any other entrepreneur. It's just that the details of your day are different, but your mindset, your challenges, your goals, uh, there's a lot of commonalities. Yeah. 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 What, so what would you tell somebody who... who you know, we we ask this question a lot, but it, and it's it's nice to get different perspectives. What would you tell somebody who wants to get into flipping houses, uh, who who may not have the experience in in that industry? You know, how would you tell them to 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 start out? What would your approach be? Well, my approach is is to first educate yourself. You know, read books, sign up with a mentor, take a seminar, um, and and that's all fine. But and then a lot of people kind of end there. And what I'm seeing is that. Most people fail to take action. They feel like they don't know everything. They're afraid of failing, and they just, just sit on the sidelines, and that kills me because I say, look, you can read this book, you can buy the seminar, and then you just got to do something. Just start doing something. Yep, yep, for sure. That's. I think there's so many people that just get trapped in that continual state of learning and learning and then pain to learn and then pain more to learn and then pain more to learn. It just It's this never-ending cycle where they never actually do anything. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, get out there, do something. All right, well, so you flipped houses, and whenever we talked about that, we I've been talking about it kind of in the past because you're not really flipping houses anymore, right? Uh, less, less so. No, less so. Okay, I'm, I'm focusing on other stuff. All right, so what what's your current focus of your business now? Well, my focus really is, uh, um, you know, commercial real estate, specifically apartment buildings. So uh, I I've always felt this that the problem with flipping houses, while it generates cash, it's there's nothing passive about it. 
Uh, you can certainly leverage your time, but if you're not looking for deals, managing your contractors, et cetera, you know, you're not making money. So it's really a job at yep. the end of the day. Yep. And, and what I really want to do is you know, go back to building up that passive income, which in my opinion, it, no, there's nothing better in the world than uh, doing that with apartment buildings. Yep. Right on. Right on, and and the the nice thing about it is, presumably at at scale, you know, you've got management in place, and you're not dealing with the headaches of of tenants and toilets and and other joyous things. Exactly, it, it's the whole outsourcing is built into the deal, right? And apartment buildings is like one of the only businesses you can get the financing for reliably. Every bank will give you financing. You can't say that about any other business in the world. And so there's a lot of uh, a lot of advantages. That's interesting. You know, it's something I don't think we've we've actually talked a lot about. But you know, I, I think investors are are um, they always complain how hard it is to find money. But but you know, coming from somebody who's got experience in in other facets of, of fundraising and, and raising capital, uh, I, I guess it's it's kind of cool to hear that it is that much easier to raise money for for uh, for real estate. Yeah, right on. So let's let's talk about your first apartment. Uh, your your uh, your very first Bigger Pockets blog article was titled "How I Bought a Twelve Unit Apartment Building with No Money Down and How It Nearly Bankrupted Me." So uh, why don't why don't you tell us a little bit about that story? Right. So um, the, I, I found the deal. I started looking for apartment uh, buildings this was back in two thousand eleven, and this one actually came through a wholesaler. Uh, it's not the primary way that I've you know, been looking for apartment buildings. We'll talk more about that. But this one came from a wholesaler who referred me to you know to houses to flip, and he knew of another wholesaler who was marketing this this building, and it was listed on the on the MLS, I believe. It's been on the market for a while. So that's how I initially ended up. Um, you know, looking for finding this particular deal. All right, so you, so you find uh, you find the property. I mean, you know, the, the title of the article itself is is kind of interesting. You you did this no money down. How'd that work? Well, when I I I wanted when I first started setting out, I wanted to use investor money um, to 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 do that. And so uh, when it, there's no money down, I I was going to put my some of my own money into it, but I I had found five investors. Who were very interested in participating in this deal, and I needed two hundred fifty thousand dollars at fifty thousand each, and I said, "Well, shoot, I got five guys who want to, you know, get in this. I'll just, well, I just won't put my money in," and so that's how that happened. Um, the no money down part of it. Gotcha. And and what was what was your percentage as as the uh, uh, ranger of the deal? All right. So the the way I structure each deal is I I, I need the investors to make between twelve and fifteen percent. Uh, average annual return over, let's say, the life of the investment, which I'm telling people is five years. And to achieve that based on the cash flow and the appreciation of that, uh, I could retain about 50% of the building and still get that for my investors. So I retain 50, 50% of the building, which is a little unusual. Normally, it's between you know, 25 30% um, uh, that you, you know, retain, depending on how you structure the deal. This one just happened to work out that way. I mean that definitely sounds a little bit high. Were were they uh, hesitant in the approach? I mean, it seems like something that they may not take kindly to. to for, I mean, no, I'm not trying to insult you at all or the yeah. deal, but I'm just. No. It would be. They, I, no, I, I I think people might be wary of fifty percent. Uh, you know, and you not putting anything in. Well, you got to understand. Also, it depends on who your investors are. If your investors true. are, if your these are friends and family, so they're going to trust yeah. me. They're they're gonna they're gonna know that I, you know. And I said, look, my, it's important that you guys make your twelve or fifteen percent. Yeah, and this is how we're gonna do it, and you know, and there's a good, there's a chance that if they don't make that, I may, you know, 
give up some of my equity to make that happen. Right. But if you don't have, if you have other kinds of investors, let's say a little more sophisticated investors, the deal will change quite a bit. Oh yeah. Okay. You may have to do preferred returns. You're, they're going to question, you know, your equity in the deal. So the deal will look certainly differently if you have a different set of investors. Well, and, and it kind of comes down to the end. You get what you negotiate. Like there is no like book out there that says this is what a real estate deal should. You know, this is how it should be split. There's no. There's no rule. There's no law that says this is how it should be done. It's whatever you negotiate. So, I mean, well, and and that's right. And when you're first starting out, the way I do it is I'll sit down with an investor and I say, look, here's kind of what I'm thinking. You know, I'm thinking this kind of return. What do you think? And they go, oh, that sounds about right. I'm thinking, you know, it's got to be at least a five year hold. And they go, okay, it's a little long, uh, but okay. You know, I'm thinking this kind of cash flow we pay once a year. What do you think? And they go, okay, or, or they give you feedback, and you do that versus going to your investor going, here's how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you do that with you know with a handful of investors, and you kind of see where people are, and then you go back to them saying, okay, based on what everybody uh, everybody's is saying, here's how we're going to do it. What do you think? And so you kind of make it a little more interactive, uh, at least with a friends and family round, and well, actually with any round really, you kind of poll your investors, and you kind of see what's reasonable and what's not. Yeah, no, that's cool. great. That's cool. great. So so for for those people who might be looking for apartment buildings you know how how would you recommend they they start looking for good deals you know what do you do uh, well i would say the primary and there's so many different uh, you know gurus teach different things you know sending letters and probates and you know networking with attorneys and so and and th- those can also yield results but i would say the number one way to find deals is through commercial real estate brokers uh, but you got to find you got to find the good ones, and you got to you got to convince them to take you seriously. So, especially if you don't have a track record, nearly every professional you deal with will not take you seriously because you're like the 99% other investors out there who are wasting their time. So, the the so the first step really is to identify the commercial real estate brokers, contact them, tell them about you know what you're doing, what you're looking for, and convince them for an in-person meeting to a coffee or lunch. And then in that meeting, you basically tell them about yourself, and obviously you have no track record. And it's surprising, by the way, how little your house flipping track record counts for apartment buildings. People yeah. could care less, really, what it is. So what you're basically doing is you're trying to show a track record of success. I have a start, you know, software uh, startup. I do pizza restaurants. I flipped houses. Okay, I haven't done any apartment buildings. Okay, sorry about that. And uh, so then you talk about your, your know, success in other areas. You talk about the other team members you've been able to build up. So if you have a good real estate attorney, bring him in. If you have some investors on board, you know, bring them in. If you have a, a lender, anyone on your team, you highlight the team and you make up for your weaknesses, you know, in, in that way. So so um, yeah, and then uh, you just stay in touch with that uh, with that broker and, and the, the key is when they send you a deal, you gotta you gotta turn around quickly. You gotta respond to that broker because nine you know, ninety eight percent of his Customers never look at any deals they send out. So you want to be the guy or gal that says, "Hey, this deal won't work for me like this, but 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 this would, and here's why." That's really so good that, advice. Yeah. Yeah. And so now the broker number one knows that you're serious because you actually crack and open his email and his marketing package, and he's getting a better sense for what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you find him? I mean, you know, yeah, I, I'm I'm looking here. You know, we've got you know 50 real estate brokers in this part of town, and and you know, how do I choose between all 50? I mean, it's going to be a headache, isn't it? Or is there some kind of easy way to decide who's who's good and who uh, I don't want to be working with? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's an easy way. I think there's a there's a system way, and I I've always used uh, LoopNet. I've done this twice now. I've done it when looking before I bought this building. I was I'm looking for apartments in Texas, so I basically I I actually had an 82 unit on a contract before I pulled out um, because of the restaurant side of stuff. But I did basically build a team in Texas, uh, and so I use LoopNet. You know, LoopNet.com, yep. and I normally don't use it for to find deals because normally. Uh, that's where deals go that no one really wants, right? <laughs> but, but but you can you can what you can do is you can look for the kind of asset you want to buy in the area you want to buy in, and you and you can contact the broker on those. And so I start a spreadsheet where I track all the brokers, and you can then click on that broker's uh, profile to see all the listings, right? So the more listings that broker has, in my mind, the more experienced and the better they are. And then you start, uh, you know, you reaching, you start reaching out to them and build a relationship in that way. So I, I just use, I use LoopNet, and yeah. uh, it's a little bit of a numbers game. I say, you know, call ten brokers and see where it leads you. Good advice. Yeah, that's great. I, I love that tip. I've, you know, I've heard. Uh, I think I read on the blog you wrote a couple articles about that, and I just thought, I thought that was just fabulous. Just contacting the brokers who may not have the exact deal right then, but they may have other deals coming down the pipeline. And if you can get in that pipeline, then you can. Uh, you can do well. So very cool. Yep. Well, hey, going back to the 12 unit then, why don't we go back to that story? Because I want to know, uh, you know, how it bankrupted you. But what kind of, uh, or almost well, bankrupted uh, nearly you? Almost, bankrupted. almost bankrupted Come on you. now. You know, we had the sensational headline. But what kind of uh, condition was it in when you took over? It, it was, it, I mean, this is, again, this is a blue-collar neighborhood. It was built in the, in the 60s. So it was in fair condition, meaning that the windows were outdated. The, there was, the roof was leaking in places. The unit's... Uh, were cosmetically outdated, um, but it had really, you know, had good good bones. So the condition was okay. What I did for the deal is I I estimated about ninety thousand dollars in repairs for a new roof, and to as we turned over the the units to turn them over and make them nice and shiny uh, in in the process. So that was kind of the condition of it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, and then when you took over, I guess what kind of challenges did you have? Uh, what did you face when you were? I mean, did you have to do a lot of work to get it fixed up to you know fully rented? I mean, what what kind of work did you do at that point? We had two units that were vacant. So as soon as we got in, we we were able to renovate those. And in hindsight, being a rehabber, I over renovated them. Had, they were probably a little bit too nice. They didn't have to be as nice as they did because the tenants are pretty rough on the units, uh, Brandon, as you as you know. Yeah. And so you want to make stuff not, not necessarily nice, but sturdy, right? So that's probably yeah. the, the way, way to do it. So I made things a little yeah. dainty and shiny, maybe, right? <laughs> and then we replaced the roof. Uh, those were probably made some improvements to the common areas. Um, yes, but, but a lot of it was done over time. But I, I got to say, one reason I got into this property was because the rents were low, all right? So... The previous owner was getting an average of five hundred fifty per one bedroom, but the market really is at seven seventy five. Wow! Okay. So, so once I saw that, I, I I I saw an opportunity. But the problem is, in Washington D.C., there's rent control, and so you can't just say, "Hey, today your rent will be thousand dollars." Have a night, you know, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, you can only raise rent uh, very systematically and and very incrementally. And so I knew that to get the the units up to Market rate would require turnover uh, as well as time. Interesting. I, so, w- what's your take on rent control? I mean, you know, it's a topic that I don't think we've actually broached in sixty-six shows, uh, and and I'm 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 curious about it. Uh, do Do you think rent control holds 
property values down? Do you think it keep potentially keeps uh, keeps properties uh, renovated to to a lesser extent that they might normally be? Do you keep competition down? What, what, what's your take on rent control and its effect on rental properties? Well, it always depends on what your perspective is, right? So if you're if you're a capitalist, you have one perspective. Um, it, you know, I, I actually have an interest in transitional housing and affordable housing. I do have an interest in that. Um, and if you look at it from that perspective, I can see the purpose of it, right? It keeps yeah. it keeps affordable housing for people uh, so they can live close to their jobs. I can tell you in D.C., if that were not the case, <laughs> the city would look quite a bit different. And you can be certain that the rents would be much higher and the buildings would be would be nicer. So I would say from a capitalist perspective, it certainly keeps rents down. It keeps the the quality of the of the buildings down, uh, for sure. So, it, from a, from my you know from a profit making perspective, you know not having rent control would be much better. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, so so hopping back to to this property was uh, how many units was it? I it was twelve units. So was there a on site manager or or uh, who who took care of that? Well, it was a property manager who I'd interviewed uh, in the in the process leading leading up to this. Uh, who you know who was uh, in Washington D.C. and so uh, yeah, uh, he he basically took the building over. Gotcha. Okay. okay, cool. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb, and that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I guess let's get to the, the the story of how did you nearly, you know, get bankrupt on this thing? I he's, avo- he's avoiding the topic, Brandon, clearly. <laughs> I want to I know the, the you know, sad story. The wounds just recently healed. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Let me get Ben and his violin. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, people have warned me about Washington D.C. and you know when you're when you're there. Anyway, everybody warns you, right? So, um, but but what actually happened was far worse than what people warned me about. And and it went something like this: there was a tenant in there who, for some reason or another, I don't know, was disgruntled in some way. Uh, but but he wasn't just disgruntled; he actually knew the system. He knew the law very well. He knew landlord tenant law. They all and, do, by the way. What's that? <laughs> they always do. The, yeah, the, the professional and, tenants. Uh, when when, when it when when it when I, when it started when I, it started, you know, I, I thought you know I was I, I thought his mission was uh, his mission was to bankrupt me. I think he felt that I was a capitalist pig, and <laughs> he he wanted to show me you know what happens to people like me, <laughs> and uh, what what. He, what he started doing, well, he wasn't paying the rent. That that was the, the least of, of things. It wasn't. But what he what he was doing is, he was basically calling the authorities uh, for 
real things and primarily made up things. But when when you do that, authorities normally respond. And when an authority and 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 you know and an inspector comes to the property, they will find something. And normally they won't find just one, but they'll find a dozen things. And so what what started happening is uh, as we were doing renovations, he was calling the um, the government office that enforced work permits and uh, and issued permits and things of that nature. And D.C. is very strict. Uh, the law is very strict. You need a permit to replace a light fixture, to replace a toilet. You need to, you know, need, you need to uh, pull permits, and it has to be done by licensed contractors. It can't be by uh, you know, a plumber that has a license in Maryland that is perfectly qualified to do deals. It's got to be a licensed person. Okay, And that person will charge you $500 to walk into the permit office, whether the, the permit costs $25 or not. So... Uh, and part of it was ignorance, where we didn't know that the and normally these laws aren't enforced to to the letter normally, but because he was calling the office every second day and emailing, he wasn't just emailing the inspector; he was emailing the supervisors and the people in charge. And so we had basically uh, you know a laser on this building. And at one point uh, they called for a hearing, and it was me, my property manager, the inspector, the inspector supervisor, and the number two in command. And I'm wondering why there was so much firepower in the room. And the guy was like, what is going on over there? I mean, we're just getting bar- you know, barraged with emails and phone calls. And, um, and the, basically, they, they fined me $25,000. Wow. Which, which, which I, you know, quote, unquote, settled for $5,000 so I didn't have to go to court. But it was my right to go to court for that. And that really opened my eyes uh, to how you know how strict the laws were and um you know and again another not that we were trying to go away with stuff it was largely <clears throat> ignorance i suppose um anyway so that was that and then you know he called other authorities like the lead paint uh, people and uh, local associations and uh, you know he he made it difficult for the contractors to work there and um yeah so those are stuff that that we're dealing with there wow so so this guy was somebody that you inherited, correct? Yeah. Okay. So ultimately, there's probably very little you can do to avoid somebody like this if, if you're inheriting a building, correct? Well, there's something that I was told to do and didn't do. Oh, what's that? Yeah, which is uh, I was told to search the, you know, the court records uh, by tenant to see what kind of legal activity there was. Oh, and, that's actually really interesting. I yeah, never thought so about that. Had I and I did it and I did it retro, you know, in I did it after the fact, and I discovered that two of my tenants that were giving me problems actually had the most active court record. And you don't really care too much about, you know, domestic and civilian disputes. You really care about the landlord tenant stuff. If someone's been in court for eviction or any landlord tenant matter, they're gonna know how to file a suit, filling out a one page form. They're going to know how to use get the free legal advice at the courthouse, and they're going to know all these things. And uh, and especially in D.C. and, and other jurisdictions, it's very tenant tenant friendly, and that may have, you know, may have made a difference. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that might be probably one of the single best tips we've ever had on the show. I <laughs> I, I, I really do. Well, I mean, I've I've in, I've inherited some bad tenants and 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 I've dealt with that and and it's an absolute nightmare and you know I never re- really even thought about that yeah you know you you look at the rent roll you look up uh who's who's on it and and uh, you know I mean if you end up 
buying a building with one, one of these professional tenants, I mean, you could really find yourself in a lot of trouble and costing you, costing you dearly as, as you've experienced. Yeah. So, um, well, now in, in hindsight, then, had you found these guys and in your, in your search, would you have potentially not done the deal? That's the big question. That is the big question. You know, we're all so eager to do a deal. And sometimes we have blinders on, um, especially if we're more inexperienced. It goes for, for rehabbing also. I mean, I would pass on deals now that I would have done two years ago. So, you know, would I have done anything differently? You know, honestly, probably not. Yeah. Probably not. I would have said, okay, I see it. I can handle it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, now, now if it happened today and you yeah. came upon the same building with the same numbers and you saw this guy and his court, you know, uh, history, would, would you say I could handle it or would you pass? Uh, you know, it, it depends. I would probably ask the previous uh, seller about this guy because they're not going to volunteer information. I would say, hey, tell me about this guy. You know, tell me about this guy a little bit. Tell me how he is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then I might, I might pass on. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but based I, on what I now know, I don't, I do not want to go through this again. That is for yeah. sure. Yeah, and <laughs> and I've got a feeling that that uh, you know, similar to you know, well, well, at least the law when you're hiring employees, you know, your your references can't really say much, but but uh, you know, a, a landlord can can certainly say so. But if they're selling the building to you, they want to get this guy and yeah, this building yeah. off their hands. So that's so. probably why they're selling. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That guy. Yeah. So yeah. How, how'd the story end? What what happened? Well, you know, I, 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 the other thing he did is he, he sued me in three different dockets, uh, probably oh. every six weeks for wow. uh, repeated things. And, and then the judges, and we were, I, I, I tell you, man, I was in court more than, I don't like being in court. It makes you very uncomfortable. I get very anxious. <laughs> I get out of there. I'm literally drained. I have to take a nap. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, this was like, I don't know, our fifth court appearance. And the judge recommended an informal hearing. And so it was me, my property manager, the judge, and, and the tenant. And uh, he's going through these things, and he was listing the offenses. And they were, uh, well, anyway, the judge knew that they were, you know, a little bit made up. And all of a sudden, he, he gets up, and he, he stands up, and he reaches out his hand. And I've been quiet the whole time, just watching this thing going down, you know. And he goes, you know, I'd like to talk with Mr. Blanc for five minutes. This is the tenant saying that. It's the tenant. And I was like, you know, I was like, what? And I said, well, of course. And you have to know, I, I made uh, three attempts to communicate with him in different ways that completely failed miserably. It was bad. So he reached over me and said, I'd like five minutes. The judge and the property manager excuse himself. And I'm sitting here. I can't remember what we talked about. You know, uh, all I know is we, we agreed to grab a cup of coffee afterwards. So they come back in and the judge says, well, what do you want to do with this case? And he says, I'd like to dismiss it. Oh. And they're looking at me like, what in the world did you guys talk about where we're <laughs> going? So he signs a paper and we, you know, shuffle down and all of a sudden I'm having coffee in the courthouse cafe with, with, this, with this guy. And we're talking about our lives and our families. And I was like, man, I'm sharing way too much stuff with him. And so is he based on our history. So we're having this really cordial conversation. And then after about 50 minutes, I said, oh, uh, by the way, um, what about the rent you owe? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, I'll take care of it. And, you know, you don't have to worry about me anymore. Oh. So, so what was it that, that I, I, I honestly, you guys, I, 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 I do not know. I think the good Lord had mercy on me. To be honest with you, I, 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 <laughs> a little I, late. I still, I, I still don't know exactly why I do know that his motivation wasn't entirely directed at me. He felt like the city was not doing their job. And he wanted them to do their job. And 
and a lot of that was uh, was uh, motivated by that. And he wasn't aware of all the stuff that costs. And because I said, look, you know, the stuff I'm spending all this stuff. I was going to renovate the, you know, the I was going to replace the carpet, and I was going to do this, and I I don't have the money for it anymore. And he wasn't aware of that. Yeah. And uh, so it was kind of one of those discussions that just opened both of our eyes, I guess. And and um, and he has not made a call since then. That was a year and a half ago. And he's still he's still one of your tenants. He's still one of my tenants. Have no you considered kidding. just kicking him out? <laughs> I mean, like you can't you can't just kick someone out in DC. They you can only you can only evict someone if they're not paying the rent. But like at the end of his lease, you can't just ask somebody to you know I'm not going to renew your lease. We're going to remodel your nope. unit. Wow. You cannot. Wow. No, so really? a month a month a month lease is the same as a lifetime lease. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow. So here's the thing about DC: that DC is extremely difficult to make money in. However, there is incredible opportunity in DC as well from a real estate perspective. How so? How so? Yeah. What, what's the What's the upside? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I see. I see a lot of potential downside. All of a sudden, the the upside is that it is a very stable market. So so vacancies are very very low. And there's a lot of demand, especially if you're looking at areas that are improving. There's lots of demand. There's a lot of old buildings like this one that have been mismanaged for 20 years because of rent control. They're they basically undervalued. So if you can get in there, and for example, if you put a Section 8 subsidized housing in there, they're exempt from rent control. All right. So if you can do that, it will add value immediately. Now, unfortunately, my previous property manager was against Section 8, so we never did that. And uh, I now have a new property manager as of three months ago, and he loves Section 8, and it makes such a huge difference because Section 8 pays 845 for those bedrooms that the previous owner was getting 525 Now, wow. you add that times 12, and the building should be worth a million dollars, right? So I bought it for 475 It should be worth a million. Once I get there, I'm in year three now, uh, and you know, maybe another two or three years or so, but that's some of the opportunity. Yeah, and and you know that's something Brandon and I had a, a nice discussion about about a week or two. We were we were debating uh, uh, Section Eight and rent control, and and yeah, uh, you know, we we had said, listen, you know, there's areas where Section Eight pays far more than market rent, um, and and there's places obviously where where it pays less, and 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 in this case, you know, I mean, there's definitely a huge opportunity for you, and that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, very, yeah. very cool. No, that's but, great. But you need to have the right property manager, and I think that's probably a lesson. Also, and sometimes you don't know that up front. You know, you yeah. don't. I know the answer to the criminal, the answer, the questions to, to ask, but sometimes you just don't see uh, how someone performs over time, and so you just have to make a correction. Well, let's talk about your property manager real quick. You you said you had an, another one, and then a few months ago you switched. So why did you switch, and how did you find your new one? Yeah, so I mean, I, I generally don't like to say. Bad things I want any anyone, and it's it's not that the property manager was bad. I think there was just not a a great fit, mm-hmm. you know. And and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, Section A is very prevalent in this part of the city, as is in some other cities. So you really need to find someone who knows and specializes in Section Eight, you know. Uh, and then for me also, um, the property manager had a lot of smaller, you know, single family houses, duplexes that they were managing. And uh, this was a, a twelve unit, which was a little big for him, but it was really kind of my entree into the commercial world, and I really wanted to go bigger. And so I was looking for more systems, right, of the property manager. I, I was looking for certain reports that he couldn't provide, and, and not without, you know, long emails and phone calls. And if I contrast it with my property manager now, the reports I'm looking for are just there. They're real-time. I log in, and it quickly tells me the story of what happened the last week, last month, whatever else. So it's the reporting that I was looking for uh, that I was missing. 
And which reports, uh, what, what reports were those? I mean, what was the information that you weren't getting that, that you wanted to get? Right. So, for example, um, you know, delinquency report. Uh, when, when were rents made? What dates were the rents made? Uh, what is the current balance? So, so that kind of thing. Uh, I want to know, well, I want to know P&L. You know, and I want to know it as soon as they, they write a bill, it should, it, I should be able to grab a P&L in real time or close to, to real time. Um, I want to know what the work orders are. I want to know when they were opened, when they were closed. I want to know what checks were written. And I want to know what unit that was for. So I can, you know, I say, well, how much did we spend on unit 202? Why are we spending so much money? What is going on there? So I can ask questions about why we're spending so much money on 202. Well, maybe it's because I'll pay in about 10 into his calls every week. Uh, or what, you know, what's going on? You know, what are we, what are we doing in there? So it's those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, yeah, for well sure. Well, hey, let's talk a little bit more about raising money because you raise money for these apartment deals. Uh, I guess, how do people start that whole process? I mean, we talked about it for flipping earlier and we talked a little bit about it, but let's say I'm a new investor. I mean, maybe done flips, whatever, and I want to raise a million dollars for an apartment building. Where do I start? My family and friends don't have a million dollars. Right. Well, that's, that's, that's a good point. All right. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, so here's, here's what you do. All right. So here's what you do. The first thing you start with your friends and family. Uh, because those are you can only start with people you already know because you that's that's what you have right and some people are more fortunate than people to know and some people are less fortunate you know uh, I say if if you if you live in a trailer park you can raise a million dollars it might take a little longer but the, the the methodology is exactly the same so you do two you do two things one is you you create a sample deal all right this is this is this is my secret that no one is I've not seen this repeated anywhere else so the first thing is you make that sample deal. It's similar to what I talked about on the rehabbing houses. If you yep. don't have a previous deal, you just make one up. Now, you got to tell people you make one up, but you basically create an investor package. And the way you do it is you, you go on LoopNet and you download a marketing package. Uh, or you go to uh, Marcus Millichap or CBRE, um, to, to the larger ones, because their marketing packages are so fantastic. They have everything. They have photos. They have air information about demographics. They have rental comps, sold comps. They have... As is financials, they have pro formas, they have everything you want in your package. So you take that thing and you just repurpose it. And uh, you, you, may, you create your own deal package out of that. And this takes a little, a little time to do that. But once you have that, you can take that to your investors and saying, here's a deal. When I get one, it's going to look like that. Okay? And you use that as a, as a tool to talk with the investors. So the second thing you do is you talk to everyone you know. You talk to, just like we talked about earlier, Hey, I'm doing this thing, 12 to 15, whatever, 10% return. You know anyone. And you talk about that. And, 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 and oh, the other thing also, mention the minimum investment because it qualifies people. Don't just say, hey, I'm looking for money. Uh, then people say, well, I got $1,000. <laughs> yep, yep. And you yep. may not want $1,000. You may want it 25000 or you may want 100000 So, yep. So mention that it's a minimum investment and the return, do they know anyone? And uh, they go, well, I don't, I don't know anyone, but my boss might, you know, might be interested and uh, and then they'll make an introduction. You follow up with that person, and you talk to them on, via email and phone, and you get to do a you do a meeting with that person. And in that meeting, you basically build credibility, right? So same thing you did <clears throat> with the investors previously. You talk about your ambitions, and you talk about your team members. Yeah, you know that that that's really really good advice. That's really good advice. So um, very cool. All right. Well, why don't we move on to a section of the show that we like to call the. It's time for the fire round. All right, so the fire round, these questions all come from the Bigger Pockets forums, and uh, we're going to fire them at you and see what you say. 
So first question, my tenant asked for a two-week extension on the rent. Would you give it? Uh, well, I guess it would depend, right? Is this a chronic uh, request um, or, or what? I don't know. Uh, I think previously I, I would have said, yeah, I'll work with a tenant. Um, now I would say, I'll work with it, but I will file the eviction today. And so when you, when you pay me that, I will then cancel the eviction. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that in D.C. because of the way the laws work. They get the clock ticking. So in D.C., I would say, no, I'm sorry. I have to follow the process. But my nature is to try to work with someone. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, that's good. Good advice. And, and I think anybody who, who's going to cut somebody a break should probably follow that advice anyway and really follow the process. I, I think that's where most new investors really start finding themselves in trouble. They're lenient or, or they don't stick to it. You know, when it's time to file notice, file the notice. And, and if they come through afterwards, you know, okay, then, then maybe we could pull it. You know, yep. w- when I first got started landlording, uh, I used to, People used to call all the time and they would just say, hey, I'm going to be a little bit late on the rent. Is that okay? And at first I said, yeah, that's fine. You know, I'll work with you. That was the beginning. And then as I got more rentals, I started saying, well, that, that's kind of annoying. So what I started doing is charging an extension fee. So I said, sure, it's going to be tw- 25 bucks to extend it for five days. And I had people every month, four or five people do it. And then that lasted a little while. But then people, I think they just got tired of paying that. And then they stopped. And maybe two, three, four months, they, they kept paying the extension fees, the same people. And then they stopped. And I haven't had to actually, I don't think anybody's asked me in three or four years now if they could have an extension anymore. And they probably don't remember that I did that originally. But anyway, that's an idea somebody could try if you wanted to. I don't know if it's worth the risk, but it was like an extra hundred bucks. Hey, Brandon, month. it's called a late fee. Well, I, I would charge the late fee if they were past the other. This days. is an extension yeah, fee, man. It's, it's, like, it's like halfway in between, right? <laughs> <laughs> The the yeah. late fee was fifty. The extension fee was twenty five. I was being nice on the twenty five dollar. I don't like you fee, and, and yeah. you're really making money. <laughs> Actually, we charge a notice serving fee. Like we, I mean, we charge the late fee of fifty dollars, and then if they, uh, if we have to send the guy out to get, serve him a notice, which we always do, we charge another thirty five because that's what we had to pay the guy to do it. So, I mean, it's a it's a hefty fee that they start getting. If uh, I re- I was reading today that like late fees are illegal in some places of the country, which I did not know. Well, and I was going to ask you, you, you know, that that very question. I'm I'm not sure that that's kosher everywhere, and and uh, all the all the fees that you might be adding may work in, in your jurisdiction, but but I, I think yeah, I yeah, check with listeners your... to check locally with with what's allowed and what's not allowed. Yeah, I think typically, like we have it written in our lease what what we're going to charge them, and uh, haven't anybody questioned it yet. And, and hopefully, you're lawfully putting it in your lease as well. <laughs> I think so. All right, Michael. What would you consider a deal breaker when looking at a multifamily? And I'm sure you have more than one deal breaker, so share a couple. Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's one in particular. I mean, no, the one deal breaker for me is not being able to provide proof of rent deposits uh, because it was very relevant. This this you know they say oh you know there's ten percent vacancy. Great, what's a delinquency? You know, show me who's actually paying the rent. Ah, uh, you know, I don't want to give you my tax return because you know I don't have a separate one for the building. Um, all right, well then, give me your you know bank deposits. You need some kind of proof of what's actually being collected over the last twelve months. And I, you know, when you're buying these smaller buildings, <clears throat> I just seen a lot of documentation missing because usually they're mom and pops, you know, small owners. They don't they're not really that that systematic. But this is one thing that I would insist on. A lot of other stuff, you just have to kind of say, well, it's not there. I'm going to have to take a chance on it. 
<clears throat> but you do want to see what the level of delinquency is in the tenant. So to me, that is a deal breaker. Yeah, that's that's good advice, and yeah. and I wish I wish I had that nugget before I bought my multifamilies. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Better late than never, right? <laughs> All right. Next question. Should I ask my family members who invest in a syndication with me? I'm going to qualify that a little bit more. Should I ask my close family members if I should invest in a real estate syndication, meaning my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my kids? Yeah. So um, the Your answer is cats. yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> but you, you have to, you have have to put up you have to yes there's a downside to that right so if a deal goes bad now you got to live with that you know during the holidays so um so can you, can you pass the gravy and $25,000 please <laughs> yes that's exactly right so but he, i mean he, you know i don't know i i think if you don't do it i, I think you're leaving an opportunity on the table i i just i i, my, I think my answer is yes you just got to get over it and you got to make it work okay Right on. All right. What's the most expensive item you've ever put into a flip? I don't know what this means. Like, what do you mean? Well, the person what? the person was asking, like, have you done any like uh, repairs What's, that were yeah really, renovation like, over Did the you top, put, like, like a gold toilet or something? Yeah, something uh, like that was just ex- yeah. expensive and ridiculous. Anything like that? Heated yeah, floors, so, you know. I mean, something. Not, not really. I mean, I, I would say it's been that's not been the issue, except for the apartments. Uh, I think you can over improve rentals. Yeah. So if you're doing that um, as a rehabber, the the standards are quite a bit different. Uh, I think on a flips, it's been the other way. It's, it's you know what should I have done that I try to cut, and that's now biting me in the butt during the inspection because I didn't put up this, that, and the other thing, or didn't you know replace the the trim. Uh, everything else looks great, but the trim looks like. You know, not good. <laughs> uh, so yeah. that's been the, the, I think, the error on the rehabbing side. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Good. Right on. All right. Cool. Well, hey, why don't we move on to the final section of the show? We like to call the famous four. The famous four. These questions we ask everyone, Michael. So uh, we want to know your uh, answers. Number one, what is your favorite real estate book? So I don't know if I have a favorite real estate book. Okay. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I, that's all right. That's a, it's a good answer. I, you know what? And I, probably my favorite answer of 66 shows. I, I, I love the fact that you don't have one. They so did. that's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, he that's did awesome. mention Rich Dad Poor Dad at the beginning. So I'm going to say that one for him. There you go. <laughs> by, by proxy, right? Um, what, what about uh, favorite business books? Sure, surely you, you probably have uh, some business non-real estate books that you uh, feel are valuable to you in your business. What yeah, and, and, and these are the kind of books that change your thinking. Okay, This is, this is when they transform your thinking. And, and Rich Dad was probably the first of those books that did that to me where I just said, man, wow, I was so off. You know, of where I, you know, and, and that was kind of my first experience where it's such a little book, so simple. And yet it was so profound, right? And then the other one, and you're going to know all these, everybody says the same thing, but E-Myth was kind of the next thing uh, to, to me. And it was one of those things where, like, wow, yeah, right on, right? And then the, I think the other one was, when I read the 4-Hour Workweek, was the same thing. I'm like, man, right, wow. That's, you know, you just kind of go, wow, right? Yep. And cool. it's not, they don't necessarily teach a specific tactic, but they change your, your thinking. Yep. All, right on. All three good, books. Good choices. Yeah, for sure. Um, what, uh, what do you do for fun, man? What, what, what kind of hobbies do you have? All right. So yeah, I play competitive tennis. I played in, played in college and I play USDA tournaments. Oh, cool. And, uh, so I love, yeah, I love doing that. What a coincidence. Cause I played tennis in like 
high school. But I <laughs> yeah. Like I played one time ever in my whole life. I, I would I would like to watch Brandon swing a tennis racket. That no, that you don't a, a fun Vine video. You don't want to see that. You don't want to see that. I do like Vine though. That is a fun thing. Come follow me on Vine. Woo! Look at that plug. All right. <laughs> Final question: What do you believe sets apart successful investors from those who never get started or who fail? Yeah, I I think I think this the secret to success, not just with entrepreneurs but in life in general, is to be intentional. I really like the word intentional. Uh, here's what I mean. Majority of us, including wannabe investors and entrepreneurs, tend to drift through life. Uh, they don't really, uh, they're very happy and comfortable with where they are and the house they live in, the job they have, and they're really never compelled to do anything different. So there's a, there's a drifting. And if you want to do something new, you can't be in the rut and the comfort zone. You have to get out of that. So uh, the, the successful entrepreneurs are ones who pay attention to their discontent and want something better. And the second thing they do is they commit. Now, these, are, these are people that say, okay, I want this and I'm going to commit to it. And then third, they take action. And this is like we talked about earlier. A lot of people simply stop there. They never take action. They'll, they'll buy another book and they'll go to another seminar, but they never take action. Uh, and I think those are the three. And then obviously once you're in it, as entrepreneurs, you have to persist. You know, there's going to be challenges, and, and if you give up on the first uh, first challenge, you're never going to make it. Um, those are kind of like the four that I could think of. That's cool. awesome. Yeah, good stuff. Well, listen, Michael, it's been fantastic having you on the show. I, I think we, we've all picked up probably quite a few really cool nuggets. Uh, we, we definitely appreciate uh, having you on. Where, uh, where can people find out more information about you in 23 seconds or less? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm bigger pockets, right? I'm writing articles about apartment building investor investing yeah. every single week. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Uh, my website is themichaelblank.com, and I have additional articles on there. I just launched a podcast as well that's on iTunes, and I also have a YouTube channel, and you can find all that stuff uh, on themichaelblank.com. Right on, man. Well, well, listen, thanks so much for being a part of the show. We we. Uh, also appreciate having you on Bigger Pockets. And uh, for those folks who are listening, if you've got any questions for Michael, you can ask uh, on the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show66. That's biggerpockets.com slash show66. Thanks again, Mike. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. All right, everybody. That was Michael Blanc here on Show 66 of the Bigger Pockets podcast. We want to thank Michael again. Uh, for all the uh, information, the insight, the tips, and and hopefully you guys will uh, avoid dealing with some of the chaos that that Michael has has gone through from listening to the show, and and that of course is the goal of the Bigger Pockets podcast is to help you guys out to be better investors. So thank you for listening. That said, another way to become a better investor is to jump on biggerpockets.com to read our articles, to get active, engaged in our community. If you are not doing that, you are absolutely missing out. The people who do get involved, not only do they grow their businesses and get better at investing, but they find partners and deals and do all sorts of cool stuff. So get involved, get active, join today. If you haven't already, get on the site. With that, I also want to remind you, jump on Facebook, make sure to like us because Brandon really wants to be liked. I like friends. Yes, we like friends. So like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, find us on G+. Do whatever you can to follow us. We're everywhere. And 
uh, you know, we're doing our part to help you out. So jump in, be a fan, follow us, get on bigger pockets, and really more importantly, get out there and make it happen. Make your investing work, be active. And that's really about it. So thank you so much for being a listener. Uh, we'll see you on the next show. I'm Joshua Dorkin, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.